November 22, 2013 marks the 50th anniversary of the assassination of President Kennedy. Andrew McRae has spent a lot of time talking to eyewitnesses to the event, and our latest podcast is the fascinating story of one of them. Pierce Allman was working as a young man at a Dallas radio station in November 1963. He not only witnessed the assassination, but he also talked to the assassin a short time later. He told his story to Andrew McRae on this edition of The Scenic Route. Right after I got out of the Air Force, I went into radio in Dallas, and I was at uh, WRR, supposed to start there, and before I could even start there, I got a job at KGKO, which became KBOX as a disc jockey. And from there, WFAA called and asked me to come and be a you know morning show host. And then I became special assistant to the manager and then manager of programming and production. That was a, one of the old clear channel broadcast facilities, and they were still doing live radio, the early bird show, which I, I did the last one of those, and then did a you know commemorative. And I had to... We, we moved out of the old studios, which were on top of the Santa Fe building that had an auditorium, and I had to move the operation into the, the new building, which is uh, connected to the Dallas Morning News, and convert it into a modern DJ operation. When I went there, there was still the announce booth, and the engineers were in the middle, and you'd signal for a station break, you know, and the whole thing, and the announcers didn't do anything. So we, you know, got into the cartridge and cassette business and, you know, slip starts and trying to trying to make the guys, you know, a little more update. It was uh it was very interesting and you know, both the programming and, and the news operation. So huh. it, it was it was fascinating. Huh. Uh, so in sixty three then, what was your role at the station? That was it. I was manager of programming manager. and production. Okay. All right. And, you know, we we were geared up for the for the Kennedy visit and had had the requisite meetings with the police and everybody else involved before. And there was there was a fine balance between apprehension and enthusiasm. Everybody was excited about the visit. Uh, there was a a magical quality to Kennedy. There was a charisma, which was undeniable. Whether or not you agreed with him politically had nothing to do with it. He was a, he was a special breed of, of politician. He was a, a extraordinarily skillful and quite bright and an attractive couple. So all of that was in their favor. Dallas at that time was the hotbed of ultra-conservatism. Uh, the ultra-right organizations were flourishing. There had been some questionable behavior uh, at some public events leading up to it, and that part was bothersome. I found out later it was bothersome to the extent that several of Kennedy's closest advisors urged him not to go. But he had made the commitment to LBJ, and he sensed the importance of Texas, and he knew that he really needed to make this trip. And after the the birth and death of their infant son, he was also very attentive to uh, Jackie, and she had decided to make the trip with him, which was extraordinary because she just didn't do political trips. So the combination that it was Mr. and Mrs. Kennedy coming really heightened, I think, the anticipation of all concern. Again, we discussed very openly you know, the possibility of, uh, of uh, you know, protests or any sort of you know, staging or disruption like that, but frankly dismissed it. Really did did not consider that uh, to be 
uh, part of what would happen. So the night before he came to that in, in, in Fort Worth, I watched the coverage. And I just, I was just uh, so struck by the style, uh, the the unerring grace uh, that the guy had, the ability to, you know, say the right thing at the right time, and then allow Jackie to make you know the entrance and to say. When he went to Paris, you know, he was the one that accompanied Jackie, and he feels the same way here in Texas. And, you know, he was given the, the, the Texas hat, and he said, he didn't put it on. So, you know, thank you, I'll put that on back in Washington. And I thought, this is, this is unusual. And I was really curious, after seeing the enthusiasm in Fort Worth, uh, despite the weather, how it would be in Dallas. So, again, we had the, you know, we had the news crews out there, covering the arrival at Love Field. And I was watching, and <laughs> sure enough, first thing when he got off the plane was to ignore the tape, you know, and the signs, and went to the fence and started, you know, shaking hands to the great consternation of the Secret Service guys. You could see it on their faces. And the reports we were getting of, of unbelievable crowds. And, of course, it wouldn't be handled that way again because there was, a, there was frankly, a, a lot of intimacy. I mean, there were a lot of people right around him and then the decision not to use the bubble top and to come on with the motorcade and we were aware that uh, Kennedy had given orders that you know the guys not to ride on the running board and not to be at the wheel wells of the limo he didn't like that and you know we got a couple of mobile reports on the way in that Kennedy would stop if there were a bunch of kids saying Mr. President we want to see you know and the Secret Service would Say no, 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 no. And he said, "Oh yeah, yeah, we got to go over and you know, shake hands or whatever." And that, that's that's great. Mm-hmm. So the crowds downtown were enormous and very enthusiastic. And you know, sun was out. And we thought, "Hey," so at the noon hour, I I thought I'll get out of the office. I'd been you know in there coordinating all day long. I thought I think I'll just walk over a few blocks and and see the motorcade. You know, say hi or whatever. So I grabbed a guy who was there, Terry Ford from Radio Sales. Where are you going? I'm going to go over and see the president. You want to go? He said, sure. And we walked over, and I, I kept looking up at the windows and the rooftops. And I remember commenting to my colleague. I said, I wonder how in the world they secure all those. And as we got closer to the corner of Elm and Houston, I thought, you know, I, I turned to Terry. I said, if, if there were going to be anything like an assassination attempt, this is where it would be. I, I thought it was impossible to have everything so secure. So here came the, you know, Jess Curry, the chief of police in the lead car and the bike cops. And the limo had slowed considerably to make the turn onto, you know, in front of the, of the depository building. It was, uh, you know, the, the, the crowds. But, but to navigate, it was a very sharp turn. It was... It, was, it may, have been, may have been a little more acute than 90 degrees. But anyway, and, and of course, the Secret Service had not wanted the motorcade. They wanted a direct route to the, you know, to the market hall. And I, I didn't even notice John and Nellie Connolly. They were in the jump seats. But I was just so struck by the couple. That's, that's what you want a first couple to look like. They were just so handsome. JFK, I was maybe 10 feet 
away, and uh, Jackie was nearest to me, and she was waving and had the little pink boucle, you know, suit and the little pillbox hat, and I thought, how wonderful, and JFK didn't wave. He had this sort of acknowledging gesture, you know, with his right hand. It would brush the hair out of his ass, and I, I think I even hollered out something like, you know, welcome to Dallas, Mr. Mm-hmm. President, whatever. I was really caught up with the occasion, and as they turned, boom, that first sound, and it, it just... It's indescribable when something like that happens because your first reaction is not that it's a shot. That that's that's so far removed from from reality. And I I, I, I glanced up and the uh, there were three guys hanging out of the you know, fifth floor window looking up at the sixth floor. And I glanced up at the sixth floor. To this day, I couldn't tell you if I saw a rifle barrel or not. You know, sometimes it's both ways. And just as I was about to say. If that's fireworks, it's boom, second shot, and then boom, the third shot, and it was pretty obvious in in in, in watching that that Kennedy had been hit. Um, his he was wearing a back brace, and so he didn't he he didn't slump forward or backward. His hands flew up to his chin. And he, he he sort of he, he sort of leaned in one direction, and then uh, third shot, and he of course leaned over, and Jackie was screaming and trying to go over the back of the car. The the guys from Life magazine erroneously reported, and a lot of people did, based on the pictures, that she was trying to get out of the car, and it wasn't so. She was reaching for the huge piece of skull uh, that was still on the back, and that's when. Youngblood and, and Clint Hill uh, vaulted over the back of the car uh, and and pushed him down, and it was his foot that was hanging over the side in that grotesque photo. But anyway, I, it was it was just an incredible short span of time that to this day you keep sort of seeing in slow motion, and I. A cop had jumped off his motorcycle and ran toward us and said, get down. I had started across the street, and I, I got down for a minute and thought, no, 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 you got to. I, I started across the street, and I'm thinking, I've got to get to a phone, because there, were no, there was no immediate coverage. The press car was several cars back, and again, there was no portable equipment, you know, no, no, nothing like transistors or portables or anything like that. So I, I rushed across the street and I picked up Bill and Gail Newman, the young couple with their two kids. And I don't know why I stopped, but I did. And I said, are you, are you all right? And he said, yeah, but they got the president. They blew the side of his head in. And I thought, wow, okay. Because he had been on a side, the other side of the street. And I kept going kind of up the hill towards the railroad track simply because there were you know, a little movement that direction, but I realized this. No, I, th- this isn't productive. I've I've got to get to a phone. So I turned around and ran back and went up the steps of the depository building and uh, asked the guy standing in the doorway where the phone was. And he jerked his thumb and he said, "In there." And I said, "Thank you." He went on in, uh, got on the phone, had a little trouble getting through, and then when I got through to the station. Fortunately, uh talked to John Allen who was on duty and I said, you know, keep 
keep keep the line open. I'm here. Uh, I, I don't remember what all. And the whole time that I thought I've got to get to the phone, and I was running, I, I was sort of processing. You're, you're operating on instinct, and I thought, what, what, what am I going to say? I, I saw the president shot. I believed. I, I couldn't see the, I couldn't see the scope of the wound that Bill saw, but it was, it was pretty obvious, heavy. So, you can't go on the. It would have been a, the, the height of irresponsibility to go on the air and say that the president had been killed. I mean that, that was just beyond, uh, beyond consideration. So I thought, okay. Do I dare say the president has been shot? It looked like two shots. Was it one? Was it two? I didn't know. I, 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 I thought it was both, but obvious, you know, the obvious thing is to say the president's been shot. Well, then what? And I don't know what anyone has told you, but I will aver positively that the mindset of everyone involved for the first 72 hours was that it was a conspiracy. There was absolutely no thought that one lone crazed gunman could carry out something of such import. And so that was that was on my mind. I thought, well, wait a minute. If, if, if properly or not, that's what I was thinking. And if this is a conspiracy... And if I go on the air and say he's been shot, does that who's who's listening? Does that trigger phase two? Do we get a bomb, an airplane? Do we get more gunmen, you know, popping up? I, you know what? And so again, just operating on instinct at the last minute, instead of saying you know the, the president has been shot, and then not able to say anything more about condition or not knowing really where the shots came from, I just kind of described what was going on and said there were three, you know, loud explosions and uh, guys with guns appearing. And I, 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 and I didn't realize what I'd said until later. And I said, we, we really don't confirm that the president's been hit. Some people say that he was and that he slumped forward. And, that, uh, and then I hung up the phone and thought, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, I need to, I picked up the, you know, got back on the line and stayed on the phone for about an hour. Uh, the only, only on the scene broadcast, uh, got it, they brought down the rifle. We got, got that on the air and it, it was interesting because no one ever took charge. No one, it was, it was chaos. I mean, guys were, you know, running around and no one ever came in and said, okay, everybody, stop, let's sort stuff out, or, you know, you go over there, you go over there. Finally, a guy came up to me in a gray suit, described himself as Army Intelligence, and asked who I was and whom I was calling. No one had ever asked me. Then I told him, he suggested it might be time to, you know, get off the phone. So I did, and then when I tried to leave, the building was cordoned off and I couldn't get out. But when I told that to the Secret Service later, uh, and to the uh, the House Select Committee on Assassinations a couple of years later. And they said, well, that's not possible because there were no Army intelligence people there. I said, oh, really? Well, I 
I'm, I'm telling you what I remember. And it wasn't for 25 years that my memory was vindicated when Gary Mack at the sixth floor said, did you ever see that transcript? I said, no. And he sent it to me, and I've forgotten the guy's name is retired, but he was Army Intelligence, and he saw a young man on the phone and, you know, went over and introduced himself. And I thought, well, hallelujah, I'm glad to know that, you know. He existed. <laughs> and then when I got back to the station, the first thing I, uh, they told me when I went in the door was, you know, the prison's dead. And we went in, and I did a brief thing on TV, and then went upstairs, and we, you know, didn't get home for three days and three nights. We were just, it was constant. We were trying to, from that point, of course, we had we had newsmen from around the world. By 6 o'clock that night, BBC was there, Germany, Japan, others, and we were feeding stations all over the country. This was in the old days of the NBC network, ABC network, etc. And our main our main task was trying to find facts and get them out. Because at that time r- rumors were abounding ironically in less than an hour and a half the assassin was captured. But who was this guy? Who was Lee Harvey Oswald? What was his background? You know, and you go out to the house and you find the old photograph of him with the rifle and all that. Well, it was just, it, 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 it was trying to ascertain stuff, and, and there was a lot of probably hypothesis going on as well. So that was, that was, that was kind of the responsibility, trying to figure out, you know, what was real and, and what wasn't, as well as gauging the mood of the town, you know. Well, we should mention... You believe you met him on the way? Is yeah, it, it, the, the ironic part of all that was that after a couple of weeks, Secret Service called and said, could they come talk to me? And, you know, I figured there was much choice, sure. And they asked me to describe where I was standing and the exact, you know, the, the time interval of the shots, which I had down to, you know, the, the split second. And then what I did right afterward, I ran across, okay, and then we went through this three, four, five times about the timing, and the, and the guy asked where the phone was, the hand gestures, you know, the whole thing. And finally they said, well, are you familiar with the testimony of Lee Oswald after his arrest? And I said, no. They said, well, he states that as he was leaving the depository building, a young man with a crew cut rushed up and identified himself as a newsman and asked where the phone was. He said, that's obviously you. He said, can you give us a description of Oswald? And I said, no, I've, I've given you the description of the guy. I said, now, knowing who it is, it's power of suggestion. It's not, it, it, it's not accurate. But I can, you know, I, I told you about slender and, you know, the dark hair and, the facial expression and, and the expression of the whole thing. So, according to Gary Mack at the sixth floor, he thinks it's the only time in history that someone witnessed an assassination and then spoke to the assassin afterwards, which is, a, oh, it, it, it sometimes causes me to think, you know, if I had, the guy standing not very far from me, Brennan, was sitting on the little abutment there of the wall, and he actually looked up and saw Oswald in the window before the shooting. But I didn't see that. 
And so I couldn't, you know, I couldn't verify it. And I, I guess if I had, and I, would I have thought at the time, oh, this is the guy who was up in the window who, you know, did he do the shooting? You know, the whole thing. I, I, it, it's yeah. speculation. And the other, you know, the other, other thing that kind of, you, you kind of wonder about is, should I have actually gone on and said the president has been shot? And, you know, to this day, I guess it's debatable. I, my instincts were to err on the side of, you know, being being safe, being conservative in the response. I really thought he was shot, but if if I had said that, I, I couldn't provide any detail about it, just mm-hmm. the guy's been shot. Well, then then what? And uh, so, you know, b- both ways. I, I don't regret, I don't regret describing what was going on and then saying that, you know, some witnesses said that he was hit, uh, which was, you know, the thing to do. Thanks for listening to this edition of The Scenic Route. Remember, you can catch all of our daily broadcasts, find links to our Facebook and Twitter pages, and much more at AmericanCountryside.com.